We'll continue this morning in our series, Ten Words, as we look at the law of God. This morning we will be in Titus chapter 2. My sermon is entitled, A Lawless Life, The Dangers of Antinomianism, and we will discuss what that word means. We'll look at Titus chapter 2 in just a little bit. Our key words for our worshipers in training are law, lawless, and grace. (laughs) One of the most important things as a Christian is that we have in our lives a biblical balance. The vast majority of errors inside and outside the church in cults and uh, various groups has to do with the lack of balance. We're not talking about being zealous and excited. We're talking about error. The error of seeing a specific truth and elevating it to a place where it becomes completely untrue. We do not want to have a ministry. We don't want to have a church that's defined by what we're against. That takes balance. A far greater use of our time and a fulfillment of the mission of the church is to focus on what we are for and to work out those implications in our daily lives. Nevertheless, there are times when biblically we are called on to identify and refute false teaching. And the Bible is infinitely clear there will be many false teachers who infiltrate the church. We must be on guard, we must identify, and we must bring an end to any false teaching. So specifically, this week and next week, we're going to deal with two areas of false teaching related to the series on the law of God. This week is the era of antinomianism, lawlessness. And next week we will deal with the era of legalism. Now I want to be clear that I fully believe all of us are capable of slipping into this error. We need Paul's admonition desperately. Take heed lest you fall. So as we address the errors of antinomianism and legalism, I want to be clear. There are true believers in Christ who hold to each of these errors. There are some in either error that do hold to heretical teaching. But most are earnestly seeking to walk faithfully with the Lord and simply come to the text with what we believe to be false presuppositions and a faulty interpretation. Also, to be helpful, it's important to me that we accurately represent those we are disagreeing with. I've sought to be very, very careful in not wrongly accusing and wrongly explaining someone else's position. To make what I'm striving for to look stronger. That's not helpful to us. It's easy to build up false uh, ideas that no one holds to and refute those. It's much more difficult to deal with what people actually believe. But that is our aim. That's what's important. I want to be represented rightly by others. And so I will seek to provide the same charity to others as well. So with that, I want to address the teaching of antinomianism. We'll define it. We'll explain it. Uh, I want to refute it and bring us back to what I believe to be biblical balance. Antinomianism is the polar opposite extreme of the era of legalism. Now, we're not referring necessarily to a position of, that just wantonly advocates sin. That is heretical. That is outside of anything biblical. That's what Paul was being accused of when he preached that the gospel, uh, preached the gospel to those who were legalists. Remember Romans 5 and 6, Paul's describing the magnificence of the gospel, the glory of God's grace, and that God's grace is far greater than our sin. That it conquers and overthrows the power of our sin, and in doing so, it brings glory to the Father. So the assumption of some was that Paul was saying, well, we can do whatever we want. We have complete license because grace will abound and sin doesn't matter. 
So Paul responds, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, of course, by no means, by no means. In fact, Paul wrote some of the strongest statements about the continued use and purpose of God's law. But there are heresies that do exist which condone sin as being completely acceptable because in the end, grace will sufficiently satisfy whatever my sin might be. Now, this may sound silly. It may sound somewhat unbelievable to us. But I think on some level, we have to admit that when we seek to justify our own sins, we often have the same mentality. It doesn't really matter. God will forgive me anyway. I know it's sin, but I'll just ask for forgiveness and everything is going to be fine. We do that, right? This is the heart behind statements like, only God can judge me, which certainly isn't about one truly wanting God to judge them, I hope, but rather a statement saying, you can't tell me what's right or wrong. I determine that and God accepts it. This is the extreme side of antinomianism and while we may all apply its principles from time to time when we are in the flesh, walking in sin, it's not the most common form of this false teaching. and It is not what we're referring to primarily. In normal theological discourse, antinomianism usually refers to the teaching that Christians today are not bound by any of the precepts of Moses' law. Now, recall last week we addressed the threefold division of God's law. We talked about the ceremonial law of God included atonement being made, blood offering and thank offerings. The civil and judicial law, the legislative laws governing people who were under a theocratic rule, laws that were defined specifically by God for the day to day functioning of a nation. And third, the moral law of God, which we identified as being summarized in the Ten Commandments. Remember also that we identified with the coming of Christ, the ceremonial and civil laws were fulfilled and are no longer uh, applicable to Christians today. Jesus was the final perfect sacrifice for atonement and he lived a life of thanks that we were unable to do. He established a new kingdom, making his people to be priests in a holy nation who live in the world under the authority of an earthly kingdom. Now, it's important to note that while we recognize that these two types of law have indeed passed away, we do understand that there are principles and implications to be drawn from the ceremonial and civil laws that should be used in understanding why we do what we do as a church. So while the letter of the ceremonial and civil law has been fulfilled in Christ, the application of principles from each is still relevant. But the moral law of God, this is what we said is still in effect. It was established at creation. It was written on the conscience of every man. It was clarified in stone at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. And in the New Covenant, we see that it is written on the hearts of every Christian. So antinomians do not only see the ceremonial and civil law being fulfilled in Christ, but also the entirety of the law of Moses, or as we've stated it, the moral law of God as well. So to be more specific for our purposes today, we need to remember the three uses of God's law that we identified. One, the law drives us to the cross, helps us to see we are not able to live up to God's holy, perfect standard of His law. And so we see our need for a Savior. Secondly, the law of God works to restrain evil. It works in society by God's common grace. As the law of God is written on every man's conscience, it restrains evil deeds, even amongst pagans. 
And third, it works for our sanctification. It is a moral standard for Christians to look to and seek to live by. Now, antinomianism is most opposed to the teaching of the third use of God's law. The law of God as a standard of living for Christians. Antinomian teaching is that the moral law of God is not binding on Christians at all. Now, there are, as with most theological categories, several different strains of this teaching. They all arrive at the same conclusion, namely that the moral law of God is not binding on Christians, but some have radically different starting places. But we are dealing with their conclusion this morning, so we're not going to go into all the various ideas of how they get there. So just to be clear before we move on, I want to quote two statements from antinomian writers that very clearly defined what we are dealing with this morning. First, the purpose of the law is to show us our need for salvation and then point us to Christ. Once it has done this, the law serves no other purpose. Another has written, I argue that we are bound only to that which is clearly repeated within New Testament teaching. So the conclusion is that none of the law of Moses... None of the Ten Commandments remain binding for us unless Christ hands it to us in the New Testament. This would also include anyone who sets the leading of the Holy Spirit in opposition to obedience to any rule of law, and anyone who sets grace in in opposition to obedience to the rule of law established by God. I will argue the exact opposite of this, which is the classic reform teaching that whatever is not abolished in Christ continues today. So antinomianism deals particularly in two areas of the Christian life. First is the area of soteriology. This is our doctrine of salvation, how one is saved, specifically the role of law in one's salvation. Some of the most pervasive errors in the church are because of an unbiblical view of God's law. If we're not clear on the law, its use and its purpose, there is no use for the wrath of God. God's wrath is something that many professing Christians today don't want anything to do with. (laughs) To be sure, it is uncomfortable to talk about, but if you look at the cross... And don't see the wrath of God in addition to the love of God? You're not seeing the cross. Yes, the cross is full of God's love. But it's also the pouring out of the wrath of God the Father on God the Son. A wrong understanding of atonement is rooted in a wrong understanding of God's law. The antinomian believes the only use for the law of God is to help us understand that we can't keep it. We need a Savior. The first use of the law. The second area that antinomianism addresses is the area of sanctification. And normally when this word is applied, this is what it is dealing with. We're not dealing necessarily with being set apart and holy, but rather the experiential living out of the Christian life. Uh, For some, there is no role of law in sanctification. In the 80s and 90s, there was a very popular teaching in America that Jesus could be our Savior without being our Lord. In other words, He will willingly and lovingly save you from hell, but repentance isn't necessary and a life of lawlessness is acceptable as long as you give verbal assent to believing that Jesus died for your sins. You sin, Jesus deals with it, and you're saved in the end. It's a very, very sad conclusion and very far off, even a simple reading of Scripture. 
One of the leading factors in antinomianism is the fact that many Christians are clueless about the Old Testament. Because I think it's been subtly communicated in modern evangelicalism that we don't need to know about that stuff because it's not really relevant to us anymore. Now, I don't know how you make heads or tails of the New Testament without understanding the Old. There's a lot of Old Testament cited in the New. That's a good question for all of us. Have you read the entire Old Testament? It's really, really tough to understand rightly most of the New Testament if you haven't read and studied the Old. I'm convinced that one reason for the popularity of therapeutic, quick-fix, two-point-in-a-poem instruction that gets called biblical preaching today is a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible is. When we simply look at the Bible as an instruction manual for life, we will only look for points of instruction and never consider, for example, what the minor prophets have to do with the rest of the story. We'll never think about what knowing the books of Ezekiel or Jeremiah have to do with understanding the book of John. Biblically, and specifically Old Testament illiteracy, has led to a gospel-less Christianity because the gospel is made to be something it never was in the first place. I cannot understand or know why Christ came. I can't know why He lived the way He did. He did the things that He did. The di- he died the way He died, raised from the dead. I can't understand why all these things happened in the way they did if I don't understand my Old Testament. And without an understanding of what God has done in the old and what the old is pointing to, there is no real way to understand accurately the new. So, for example, atonement, Jesus' death, has been translated into not necessarily being about paying a penalty for our lawlessness and our inability to uphold the law of God, making a sacrifice, taking on wrath. Instead, very recently, in the last ten years, one writer wrote that our understanding of the atonement is the equivalent of cosmic child abuse. Instead, he argues, Jesus died to prove that He would rise again and give ultimate example to sacrificial love. Now this is a poor reading of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. It is a very low view of the law of God to say the death of Christ wasn't necessary for the forgiveness of sins. If we know what the law of God is about, the implications and the application, then we will have a balance. The psalmist wrote, Your law is light. Is the law of God a light for us? The antinomian would answer, no. No, we have a different light. They claim most often is that the light is simply, is simply grace, no law. But as soon as we start down the road of talking about the binding nature of the moral law of God, many evangelicals today want to say, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Well, I want to ask the question, who said that? Where and in what context? Of course, they're seeking to quote the Apostle Paul, but what was Paul talking about when he said we are under grace and not under law? It is true that there are scriptures that on first reading seem to apply that the Christian has nothing more to do with the law of God. For example, Romans 6.14, we are not under law but under grace. Seems very clear. Galatians 3.25 says that the, the Christian is no longer under the supervision of the law. Likewise, there are passages that seem to teach exactly the opposite. Romans 3.31 asks, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? By no means, rather, we uphold the law. 1 Timothy 1.8 We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Now, these passages that appear to be contradictory cannot be so. They're in the Bible, and 
All of them are from the pen of the Apostle Paul. So we must keep in mind that Paul is dealing with certain people, certain issues in certain places. For example, as he's writing to the Galatian church, he's dealing with the false teaching that they, are, that they were receiving. That in addition to having faith in Christ for their salvation, they also needed to keep the ceremonial law, especially the law related to circumcision. So Paul sets out to prove that in order to be a Christian, one must trust in Christ alone because we do not earn our salvation by obeying the Old Testament ceremonial law. He makes it very clear when he writes, by observing the law, no one will be justified. So we need to understand the context. We need to understand what the law can and cannot do. Most importantly, we need to understand that the law cannot in any way add to our salvation. But as we considered last week, it's hard to read the Old Testament and not recognize there is something good about God's law. Particularly as you read through Psalm 119. It presents the law of God as pure and holy and just. And the Apostle Paul says the same exact thing. In fact, in the middle of explaining the gospel, he writes that he's not eliminating God's law, but he's establishing it. So in general, you'll find that those who hold to and write from antinomian perspectives think Christians holding to any use of God's law are legalists. And we'll see next week that legalists tend to call non-legalists antinomians. So perhaps a good rule of thumb for us is that if anyone thinks you're antinomian and no one thinks you're a legalist, you might be on the wrong page. Generally, it's good to be taking fire from both sides. Then you know you're in the middle. So let's look at Titus chapter 2 to give us some clarity. Titus 2 verse one, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So what do you expect in exhortation from Paul to Titus? What do you expect it to include about teaching sound doctrine? What do you think that would be followed by? Maybe a dissertation on the Trinity or an affirmation of the virgin birth of Christ. But look what he relates to this command to teach Sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So what does Paul present as being sound doctrine? Sound doctrine is a practical outliving or outworking of what we claim to believe. You can believe a whole lot of right things, but if they are not lived out and worked out in your life, they're useless. Soundness involves balance. And the whole counsel of God, holding nothing back. This is exactly what Paul was referring to when he said, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul taught a ton of theology, but he taught an equal amount of practice. He gave an incredible amount of imperatives. Do this, don't do that. 
Uh, Notice here in Titus, Paul's writing about life lived out in the Christian community. The older and the younger are interacting. Older men are encouraging, discipling younger men. Older women are encouraging and discipling and training younger women. So, obviously, this admonishment involves relationships. It involves interaction between the people of God. This is sound teaching. We see in verse 9, he talks to those who are slaves or bondservants. Well, this is an exhortation for us in how we treat our employers. You see, sound doctrine involves living in such a way that the world does not look at us and say they don't believe what they say they believe. But by our Christian lives, we show consistency between how we live and in what we say. For what reason? To earn our salvation? That's not what Paul said to Timothy. That's not what Paul says to Titus. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, what kind of grace is this? Is this the grace of God that comes to all men? Is he talking about common grace, that all men everywhere have some measure of the grace of God? Or is he writing about a grace that it is that is a theoretical possibility if one just believes that God has offered his grace to all men and it's up to man to simply believe? Now, look at it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So it is a grace that brings salvation, not the hope, not the possibility of salvation, but the grace that does bring salvation, saving grace. Well, what does he mean that it appears to all people? Well, Paul's not a universalist, so he doesn't mean everyone will be saved. He's referring to Jews, Gentiles, bond, free, male, female, every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. It is grace that saves. It is so sad to reduce grace to something that God simply puts out there to try to help us do this stuff on our own. This is saving grace. But notice what else it is. It is also a teaching grace. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God is teaching us. Grace is free. It's not only unmerited favor, but we actually merited just the opposite. Grace has provided to us all that we have. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is the entire realm by which your salvation is held. You are not saved by grace and held by works. You are not saved by grace and held by grace and glorified by your works. It is all of grace. But, if I'm going to believe all that the Word of God says, I need to see that the grace of God teaches us. A heart touched by the grace of God is not a heart unconcerned about these things that he mentions in verse 12. Ungodliness, worldliness, living soberly, righteously, living godly lives. Can the grace of God save without the grace of God teaching? As we looked at before, one of the strains of antinomianism is the belief that one can simply believe the gospel once in a moment to be saved. Even if on that same day we become an atheist and an axe murderer. It's okay because we said the prayer and got our ticket punched. And anything beyond that, in their perspective, is legalism. That is seriously flawed. 
A passage like this points to a completely different reality. A heart that has been changed is concerned not just with salvation, not just with making sure we're okay in the end, but a heart that has been changed by the gospel is concerned with godliness and righteousness and walking faithfully and soberly. It is the grace of God that teaches us. How does it teach us? Do we learn by osmosis? Does it just happen when we become Christians? If so, why would Paul tell Titus to teach these things? The normative way in which grace teaches us is God making us lovers of the Word of God. And we read it and we study it, and it will exhort us in this direction. And God has ordained that certain men who are appointed as overseers of the flock are able to teach and rebuke and exhort. Sound doctrine, the normal means of the proclamation of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, singing, prayer, all of these wonderful means of grace. These are the things in the Christian life, in the church, in the community that are leading us to be taught. It's by grace that we are taught what it is to live a Christian life. That's what Titus chapter 2 is about. Grace teaches us. Well, what does all this have to do with antinomianism? Well, if you don't believe God's will has been revealed to us and how we are to live, how do you know what is ungodliness? How do you know what is unrighteousness? Remember, we said last week about the ten words, the ten commandments, the first four are related to our relationship to God, Jesus summarizes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These four are related to our godliness. And 5 through 10, love your neighbor as yourself. 5 through 10 are related to our righteousness. God has revealed His will to us. And a summary of what it means to live the Christian life is obedience to God that is found in the Ten Commandments. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's so sad when people hear this and reject it. I, I can fully understand someone who's been delivered from legalism and making a pendulum swing. I, I understand that tendency. So they hear something like this and say, that's what I used to hear, but I learned what grace is This is where balance comes in. What is doing the teaching here in Titus 2? Grace. Grace is teaching. Undeserved, unpurchased grace is teaching you how to live in such a way that you will honor and glorify the one who has saved you. That's what Paul writes in verse 12. It is grace that is training us to renounce ungodliness. It is grace that is calling us to renounce unrighteousness and to put on godliness and righteousness in our lives. Adhering to the moral law of God is not adding to your standing before God. It's simply being obedient to the God who has saved you. It's the proper response when God saves you and is at work in your life. Humility. The honor of God. Men, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Love your neighbors. Love your enemy. See, God has given us guidance. And each one of these things I've just mentioned relate back to the law of God. The Spirit of God is applying those truths to our lives. And the saving grace teaches us both negatively, renouncing ungodliness and unrighteousness, and positively, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If we live by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desire of the sinful nature. But sometimes we need to know what God expects on a particular matter so that we can obey the law and keep in step with the Spirit. For the Christian, the law is not an enemy, but a friend whose directions we love. And it brings freedom, not slavery. 
Because the royal law of love now controls us. Remember, Paul reminds us that the whole of the Old Testament is for our instruction. So it's important to see exactly what Paul is writing here to Titus. It's important to recognize both negative and positive elements of the guidance here. Identifying sin is easy, but it doesn't stop there. We should live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. And that takes time. It takes time to develop biblical, godly wisdom. It doesn't happen overnight. It would be a whole lot easier for all of us if I could simply stand here and say, I will give you ten steps to living a happy Christian life. But the Bible calls us to something completely different. A self-controlled, upright, godly life. Learning to do this is a lifelong task. It is never complete. A heart of wisdom is a precious possession. If we consider it so, we pursue it with more zeal. A heart of wisdom before God is precious. So I know how to live soberly and godly and righteously. Psalm 119 says, I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I delight in your commandments because I love them. Did you hear what the psalmist wrote? He said, I will walk around in freedom under your moral law. This is exactly what Paul meant in writing in 1 Timothy 1.9. The law is made not for good men, but for lawbreakers and rebels. He's talking about the condemnation of the law. So the law is only a tyrant to the lawbreaker. Those who are walking in faith in Christ love the law of God. It points us to godliness and righteousness. So grace saves us. Grace teaches us. And that teaching is pointing us to the law of God. Now Paul gives instructions as to what our attitude should be as a result. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't walking through life feeling weighed down by restrictions and legalistic rules. It's a joyful anticipation of becoming that which we are striving for now, but we will never reach until we are glorified. That is perfection. The Christian life is a life lived towards something greater. A life lived unto God in anticipation of the great joy of eternity. You see, God's grace teaches us. What does it teach? It teaches us God's law. Well, what does it do? It molds us in godliness and righteousness. Well, what attitude does it create within us? Godly anticipation. We'll be hope-filled. We'll have joy in what is yet to come. And so Paul gives all of this instruction. Older men, older women exhort younger men and younger women to live in a certain way. And here's that certain way that they ought to live. And what's the context of all of this? Look at verse 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The trouble with antinomianism is the response to passages such as this one. What does the antinomian do with a passage that says the very purpose of Christ in redemption is to redeem us from lawlessness? Notice, it didn't say he died to make us more loving, to give us more full and meaningful lives. It says to redeem us from lawlessness, which means that we will live law-abiding lives. Now, it's important to notice the order. We are redeemed, and as a result of that redemption, we become law-abiding. If you mix that order up, we get it all wrong and we become 
just like every other world religion. We're saving ourselves. We have to understand redemption comes, and as a result of that redemption, we are now free to fulfill, to uphold the law of God. Now, some antinomian positions look at a passage like this and say obedience to God's law, striving to live a godly, righteous life, is simply for those who want to be super-Christians. The super-Christians who just take their Bible more seriously than I do. We don't have to live any specific kind of life. It's optional. But here's what that means. That means that Jesus is trying to do what Paul says Jesus did, and he's failing to redeem us from every lawless deed. Christ is trying to purify his own special people who are zealous for good works, but he's limited as to what we allow him to do. That's not what Paul says, is it? Paul says Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness. Balance is in the New Testament and it is God-breathed. That balance is lost all the time because it gets pulled in one direction or the other. So we should rather feel the tension of of the two pulling us in both directions. For us... If there's a certain lust or sin in the heart, there's a bent toward antinomianism. It's sin, but I'm going to drown it out. Grace, grace, grace. Then there are others. It, It can't be just grace. I need to do this or I need to do that in order that God will love me, so that God will accept me, so that God will give me life with Him. Law, law, law. There are so many on both ends of the spectrum, but it's very difficult to stay right in the middle and to understand I am saved by grace alone. It is by grace alone that I am redeemed in Christ. And it is His law that has driven me to an understanding of that grace. And it is His law that is sanctifying me and purifying me and making me to be godly and righteous. The only way to stay in the middle is to not be dragged off into antinomianism is to have a balanced view of the Word of God. Verse 14 says that Jesus has a particular purpose in His work. Why did He do what He did? There are so many voices questioning the Word of God, but really we can affirm the sufficiency of the Bible. But if we will not study and preach and apply the law of God, we are no better than theological liberals that reject any standard of living that is commanded of us altogether. Remember Matthew one twenty one: You shall call His name Jesus and He will save His people from their sins. He doesn't say He might or He's going to try to. It says He will save His people from their sins. It's very easy to hear those words, though, within our tradition. Well, that means He's going to make a way to salvation. That's not what it says. It says He will save His people. He gave Himself for us. Substitutionary atonement. In our place, our sin, our punishment, He took it. Notice Titus 2.14. There's a little word after for us. Christ Jesus gave himself for us to, or your translation may say that. Well, what was he doing? What was his purpose? What was his intention in giving himself for us? It's never stated anywhere in the Bible that he was creating a hypothetical plan of salvation that maybe we might gain the hope of salvation. He gave himself for a purpose. I laid down my life for the sheep. Also, verse 14, for himself a people, his own special people. Whether or not he succeeds at this is not in our control. It's amazing how many say it's up to us whether or not he succeeds. Read verse 14 again. As a result of the work of Jesus, 
I'm not changing gears here. I didn't go off on another topic. We're still addressing antinomianism. As a result of the work of Jesus, his people are zealous for good works. Why? And the question we have to ask, is it the zeal that results in redemption? Is it the zeal that results in purification? No. That's where man gets it all backwards and reads the Bible wrongly as a means to be saved rather than what God does when someone is saved. There's a huge difference. Again, balance. You see, the clear teaching of Scripture is that Christ has redeemed a people for a specific purpose. He has saved us. He's giving us zeal for good works. What are those good works? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Godliness, righteousness, fulfilling the moral law of God. You see, the key to avoiding antinomianism is to not believe in a gospel that has a Savior that only tries to save people. If you believe in a gospel that has power and commands men to repent, you understand there is authority in the gospel and in the Savior because there is authority in the statement. A right understanding of Christ's authority leads to a right understanding of God's law. Far too often the picture is painted of Jesus that is not the picture of Jesus that we see in the Bible. Did Jesus walk up to the grave of Lazarus? Lazarus, would you, would you like to raise from the dead? Think about that. There's people all around crying and wailing. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine what would happen if he didn't rise from the dead? He laid it all on the line. And yet, this is what so many believe about the gospel. That we are going to the graves of the dead and saying, please come forth. That Jesus is saying, please just take my hand, please. Please just take my hand. Dead people don't do that. This isn't the picture. Is Jesus just trying and failing? That's not what we see here in Titus. We see Jesus giving himself for us, a specific people with a specific purpose, and he accomplishes his purpose perfectly. And in doing so, he makes us zealous for good works that we love and desire to live up to the calling of God's law. Where's the balance? God's grace is free. God's grace cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. It is God's grace. But since it is God's grace... By nature, it affects exactly what God intends it to affect. And that grace teaches us certain things. When you take out this part of the New Testament, the message of godliness, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, what happens? Well, what happens is a gospel that does not just call men to repentance that does not identify sin as lawlessness, that does not include the judgment and wrath of God. So all we're left with is non-offensive language, psychological manipulation, and encouraging tips to live a less difficult life. That is not the gospel. But how can we be zealous for good works if we don't know what good works are, if we don't have a standard? When you take that out, you have no gospel left. You have an empty message about a man who is nice. And if you add some of his teachings to your life, you will have happiness and fulfillment. That is not the gospel. It takes effort to remain balanced. It takes effort for a church to resist the constant pressure to compromise on these issues. We could fill this place to the brim if we didn't preach the law of God and call for repentance. But that does not change hearts. And we do not build the church. God does. And here's how His Word tells us He does it. He uses His law to convict us of our sins and show us that we are unable to uphold His perfect and holy standard. He drives us to our need for the gospel. 
He drives us to our understanding that we are in need of a Savior because we cannot do what God commands of us. We have sinned against Him. But He has made a way. God the Father sending God the Son to die in the place of His people, receiving His wrath on our behalf, dying, buried for three days, and raising from the dead to be triumphant over death itself. And in doing so, it gives us hearts of gladness to follow after and live up to the law of God, giving us a great zeal for good works that are defined by the law of God. And we love to do what God has commanded because we are His and we want to fulfill our purpose to glorify and enjoy Him forever. And so we see our great need for the law of God. And next week we will look at what it means to take the law of God too far and to apply it in a legalistic way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for revealing to us what you command. And in giving us what you command, that you have made a way for us to be obedient. Not obedient for our own salvation because Christ has purchased that for us. But obedient that we can reveal to the world your glory by doing good works with zeal. Those good works being defined by what you call them, not what we ourselves call them. So Father, I pray that you help all of us to have a love for your law. To seek to apply your law. I pray, God, that you help us to be free of the error of antinomianism. That we not put away your law, that we not put away the Old Testament, but that we see it is all for our good, our instruction. And that we simply rightly understand it in light of what you have revealed to us in the rest of the Bible. Help us to have good biblical balance, to walk in your grace that saves and teaches that we would live holy and righteous lives. Thank you for your instruction, O God. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.